Okay, say some things. Hello. Adventure. Love. Connection. Risk. Passion. Evolution. Play. Life. The Archetypal Tarot Podcast. Provocative mythology for the 21st century. A warmest of hellos to our Archetypal Tarot Podcast listeners. This is Cindera Quackenbush, and I am excited to offer this special travel edition episode. This month marked a trip to London where I had the great privilege to offer a workshop entitled The Therapeutic Use of Card Imagery and Archetypes at the International Association of Art Therapy Conference. I then headed to Athens, Greece, visiting the Acropolis and its museum along with the nearby Roman sites such as Hadrian's Library. I relaxed and wrote the ideas for this podcast on the beaches near Thessaloniki, and my travels were rounded out and further inspired by the National Storytelling Network's summit that was held in the last week of July in Fremont, California. Pausing just for a spell from our new podcasts featuring guest questions, readings, and stories, This podcast will represent one of the occasional detours that we'll visit on this program. Just so that we may explore the archetypal depths of the larger world in more living detail. I will share with you a Greek myth retelling and an exploration of a couple archetypes that we also find in the Tarot, as well as being still present in the sculpted figures of history. My experiences over the three-week period of travels has brought me into contact with some contrasting archetypes, new for reflection, and of course, tales of the gods and goddesses from Greece, of which I have always, since childhood, been fascinated. I have heard it said that within the interests of middle school lie clues to what you'll be doing later in life. Perhaps it is no wonder, then, that I ended up following passions this podcast being one of them, given an experience I had in sixth grade. Mrs. Nared's class, in collaboration with the other sixth grade teachers, provided an excellent introduction to ancient Greece. Every Friday, we dressed in togas, which I now understand were actually Roman, and were broken up into groups of the ancient Greek city-states, including even a Mount Olympus. One day, my teacher, Mrs. Nared, an older woman with short curls and loving, though stern eyes, came to me and said, None of the students know, but you will be the Oracle of Delphi. And so it was. All the students were asked to fill out index cards, asking any individual question they could come up with. The Oracle of Delphi, a.k.a. my sixth-grade self, took the cards home. I was not, however, given any instruction as to how to answer them. This was, of course, before I knew Tarot or any other Oracle practices, so I resolved to simply make up every answer. There seemed to be no problem with this, except for the fact there was just too many questions to answer for the entire grade, which, consisting of three classes, was probably about 60 questions. Well, just answer some of them, was my mother's simple solution. And so I didn't answer them all. 
The day came for the Oracle of Delphi to answer all, or almost all, the questions that had been brought to her. A temple of Delphi had been built by the students themselves with mostly purple paper, accented with some white paper columns. Behind my back, Mrs. Nared had strategically placed some dry ice that wafted a mysterious ether, supposedly representing the hallucinogenic gases that were believed to have intoxicated the medium during the times of ancient Greece, allowing her to bestow the messages of the god Apollo. What I would give to remember just one question a student had asked or one answer that I had fabricated, though I don't remember any of them being very interesting. The good news was I don't remember anyone complaining about the quality of my answers, which, given that time in school, is something of a miracle in itself. I do remember, however, getting a lot of flack for not answering all the questions. You didn't answer my question, I remember many of the students saying, but you didn't answer my question. I deemed the episode a failure at the time. However, I feel now a bit in awe that the experience itself was a foretelling of my future love for cards, tarot, and the many aspects of Oracle. I've been consulting my own story through Stone Oracle deck to answer people's questions ever since. I have yet to visit Delphi in modern-day Greece, but was able to step my feet in Athens for a brush with one of the most iconic and well-preserved temples of Greece at the Acropolis. Yes, this is a major tourist attraction anyone can visit and does visit while they're in Athens, but is well worth the lines, the 20 euros, and the potential lost hats that blow from its precipice onto the rocks below. With the Parthenon and the Erechtheion, I felt closer to the presence of Athena, a patron goddess of mine being a father's daughter, than I ever had before. The Greek columns, not made from paper or even copies in American architecture, stood taller than I had ever imagined. The experience, of course, humbled a somewhat dismissive thought I had had just days before while reading Lisa Damore's recent book, this year, 2019, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Damore offers some metaphors for dealing with conflict that can be offered to our young people, but also serve as thoughtful reflections for any of us who still find ourselves in touchy situations. Tempting but destructive options include the bulldozer, plowing over someone else to get your way, the doormat, allowing others to walk over you without speaking up, and the doormat with spikes, a passive-aggressive approach where you allow others to walk over you and then punish them in some emotional way indirectly. As an honorable option that avoids these scenarios, each person can make the choice to be a pillar, standing one's ground without harming anyone else. I must admit, while recognizing the meaning and validity behind these metaphors, and I could certainly relate with experiences of each of them in myself and others, I wasn't incredibly inspired by the image of the pillar as the one positive option offered. I mean, it's a pillar 
straight up and down, not too exciting, kind of lifeless, faceless, unanimated, not very feminine, kind of phallic. I wasn't feeling it. But then here I am standing at the Acropolis and I see the six ionic columns of the Erechtheon and they are women, maidens, the Caryatids, draped, proud, tall, their hair braided down their backs. Yes, yes, I will be a pillar or more specifically a column. I would love to have that essence. I steeped myself into the myths and stories that surrounded the Erechtheion, which was built in 421 to 406 BC and was dedicated to both Athena and Poseidon. I thought this was interesting as the goddess of wisdom and the god of the sea were often storied to be enemies. The most famous of these stories was associated with the Erechtheion, the supposed burial place of the first king of Athens, King Kekropos, and where the porch of maidens, though as replicas, still stand witness. The story goes something like this, a creative retelling of this particular myth I wrote while on the beaches of Thessaloniki. Kekropos was born of the sand and the sea. He was the king of a great new city on an ancient land of both hilltop and water. Being of both elements, he had the form of a human and of a fish, his lower half uncoiling like a sea serpent behind him. A patron god was required for the new city, and two powerful Olympians naturally nominated themselves. From the sea near which the new city rested was Poseidon, god of these powerful forces of water welling up from within and around him. He also possessed the three-tiered trident representing his dominion over sea, horses, and earthquakes. Athena of air and land was crafty and watched all on earth from the eyes of the hawks in the day and the owls of night. She also existed in the ether of the brain, the wisdom that could dawn on you in a moment, even in the depths of your greatest trials. Athena was guarded and yet could always be with you, her gifts a surprise when you needed them most. And so it began with a race. Poseidon, also the god of racing, fell fast upon the path, the full gallop of a breaking wave, dousing the ground and making it sinking and slippery for the following flight of Athena, who readied her robes for the full force of the contest. Poseidon arrived first to Kekropas, whose fishtail greeted him with familiar delight. Poseidon was surrounded, haloed by the majesty of the sea's foam, coating his crown, his defined divine muscles, and his long seaweed beard. He indeed looked like a patron god of gods. Up raised his arm with the three-tiered trident of greenest brass glowing. He struck a rock and out flowed a stream of water. Kekropas was mesmerized, his eyes blue with the water's emergence. Not even he, with tail fit for the sea, could create such a flow of water, a spring from out of nowhere. 
Most impressed, the king stooped low to the water's lip, gathered it in his palms, and took a sip. So salty. He smiled with the sea's familiar taste, but to offer another drink, he was in no haste. Proud was Poseidon, first and miraculous. But Athena was already here. When did she arrive? By divine sandal or hawk's wing? It was time to do her thing. Tall and confident, like a column yet calm, her full focus fell into her own hand's palm. Clasping her spear, she too thrust deep into a rock by which Kekropas was near. The spear struck straight like a pillar in stone, and she removed an olive branch from behind her ear. With the ambrosic balm of her hand, she attached the branch to the wood of the spear. Immediately it grew roots deep through the stone into the ground, securing it eternally sound. The olive with its wondrous oil, the branching into all life it would serve, the greatest gift. King Kekropas had to choose. Did he have the nerve? Again, in wonder, he wrapped himself around the magnificent olive tree. It solidified him, rooting him to the land of which he was now king. From the branches he could see the view of all his domain, and from these heights the patron goddess was named. Athena! Athena! Athens! Athena stood proud in her victory, the goddess Nike dancing in her palm. Poseidon disappeared through the well he had fathered, taking its stream with him. Descriptions of his curse vary from a drought inflicted upon Athens ever since, or, in other cases, a great flood. And so it goes whenever we praise one god over another, where the riches one may pour, the others stays just always out of reach. Reflecting on this myth, I gravitated to the fact that we have a male god with classically feminine qualities, the flow of the water of emotion, and a female goddess with the classically masculine qualities of steadfast armored victory. Now, I know that Kekropas is a male figure. However, I would like to reflect on two contrasting feminine archetypes here, the mermaid and the pillar woman, introduced earlier, inspired by the Lisa Damore metaphors. Pillar woman stands tall, strong, and poised. She knows how to position herself in each situation that occurs, finding her footing and sticking with herself in that place. She knows how to hold her ground. However, she supports not only herself, she works with a larger structure to support others as well. She is connected to both above and below. There is space around her. She is not a wall. She is grounded practical, and organized. In decision-making, she is solid, sure, and realistic, firm in her opinion. We find the pillars in the tarot in the cards of the high priestess as she sits between the two pillars, light and dark, representing the dualities we find ourselves having to navigate again and again. Pillaresque columns also bring the high priestess's veil along with the hero of the chariot card, 
as he quests out into the world. You might see the qualities of the column visiting the wand suit, or any time there is a scepter, staff, or sword connecting with the ground. The material grounding quality of the pentacles also brings the pillar to mind and appears central in the Three of Pentacles card, which symbolizes being able to work with a team to accomplish a task. The shadow side of the pillar archetype is inflexibility, being opposed to change, single-minded, stubborn, and supporting the permanent establishment for better or for worse. Being taken over by the pillar influence may make you frozen in time, unmoved, unmoving, even as the environment changes around you. And now for the mermaid archetype. She is spontaneous, fluid, and flexible. She embodies movement, emotion, feeling, and desire. She is talented, flowing into new forms of creativity like the irresistible siren's song. She lures, she goes to the depths and emerges to new surfaces with rare pearls. She is open-minded, a dreamer, her thoughts carrying her down streams of beauty that even Aphrodite would envy. We find the mermaid archetype in the tarot within the suit of cups, with their watery metaphors of feeling and emotion, and also in the major arcana with the star and temperance. One foot in this world, one foot in the next, allowing the influence of unconscious workings to flow from their cups and pitchers. The shadow side of the mermaid is that she is not dependable, to say the least, and at her worst, untrustworthy. She is slippery with time, deceptive, inconstant, fleeting, and though capable of great depths, can often be found in the mirrors of the shallow. She can have a changeable mindset, which can be an asset, except you never know quite where she stands. You may recognize the qualities of either or both mermaid and pillar in yourself and the people you know. It is a spectrum we all move upon. If we know where our tendencies fall, we can have more understanding while working with others. As a creative mermaid type, you may appreciate the sturdy steadfastness of the pillar to help ground your ideas and help them materialize. Certain facts you overlooked will help to strengthen the basis of your ideas and make them work in the real world. As more of a pillar person, the mermaid may help you to see from new perspectives and embrace change. She will enhance your empathic abilities, deepening your imagination. If the opposing styles can work together, they can accomplish much greater things than perhaps a pillar and pillar or a mermaid mermaid may accomplish. If the two can get over their differences, the friction of misunderstanding and conflict, they could perhaps erect the new Acropolis of the modern world. I hope you have enjoyed this special travel reflection podcast and mythic retellings. We are still accepting questions and readings to be featured on the podcast, which you can submit by becoming a patron. And you can email your questions to tarotpodcast at gmail.com. Make your tiny or not so tiny pledge at tiny.cc forward slash tarot 
and warmest thanks to our current patrons, Kat, Richard, Ali, and Geneva. Thank you so much and see you next time.